overview of the tabernacle as we are looking some of the theology of the book of Exodus. Great theme of deliverance unto service and an essential part of the service that these redeemed people were to exercise was the worship of the Lord and the tabernacle set up, the tabernacle economy, uh, was one of the key means by which God was teaching them what worship was all about. The symbolic and typical significance of the tabernacle is certainly much on the surface uh, and must be understood if we're going to appreciate completely what the Lord uh, is setting down for these people and by application and instruction for us as well. Uh, I've defined for you what I mean by symbol and what I mean by type. It's imperative to keep these two uh, ideas distinct. We talk about something being symbolic. Uh, it is simply an object lesson, something that was visible, something that was tangible, uh, that conveyed a spiritual truth uh, to the people in that immediate context. When we speak of something being typical, we are simply saying that that has a future reference. It is a picture prophecy. God is using that object lesson uh, to point to something that would come indeed in the future. And ultimately, when we speak of the tabernacle here and this entire economy, uh, it is very much a prophecy, a picture prophecy uh, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work uh, that affected all of these great benefits that were uh, illustrated by the tabernacle system. Now, I'm trying to be as general as I can. Uh, I, I think we're all aware that uh, there have been interpretations concerning the tabernacle that get right down to every socket and every, uh, every thread that is intertwined one way or the other uh, that is supposedly reflecting some symbolic and spiritual message. I'm not going to uh, necessarily disdain those, but I want to emphasize the primary message uh, is... Uh, in these great focal points that God himself is setting down. Now, we learn many details. I, I, I learn from the tabernacle and all of this immense instruction concerning uh, its making and the detailed uh, account concerning how you put this thing together, that God is concerned uh, with uh, small details. Uh, some of those things in the tabernacle were dealing with very, uh, in, in essence, mundane uh, aspects, uh, God's wisdom, if you will, in making this tent to keep things dry. Uh, and there were certain fabrics there to protect the elements against, uh, against the weather. Uh, very practical. Uh, other things that were there for ornate uh, beauty. That again says something about the person and the character uh, of God. Uh, so I don't want to take this uh, for right now anyway beyond the surface as the Lord gives you insight. I just recommend, please, that you do not interpret typology uh, and symbolism by the degree of the fertility of your imagination. Uh, it is not what you think you see uh, that makes something intentionally uh, typological. Uh, I, I emphasize here that, that types are not a means whereby we in the 20th century in the modern church are trying to rescue some degree of relevance from the Old Testament text. Uh, we read it, oh, it doesn't make any sense, so we all of a sudden just plug in and say this is a type of. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I, 
am concerned that we focus upon what God intended. And I emphasize again that our understanding of typology is not just something that I am foisting upon the Old Testament scriptures uh, to somehow extract uh, a nifty relevance uh, to, uh, to, the, to the modern church. Uh, it is not my imagination. Right? It is not my imagination that determines and identifies types. It is the divine intent. Can I read this out? Uh, and if I don't read it out when it's there, I misinterpret. But I submit to you, if I read it in there when it's not there, I misinterpret as well. Uh, so let's try to be sensible here and realize that uh, that these are not encoded messages. All right? It's a lot of uh, a lot of stupid talk today. It's not just today. This stuff's been going on for years and years and years uh, about all of these uh, encoded messages uh, in, in in the Word of God. Uh, that uh, if you count every fifth letter and subtract by every second letter, uh, you, you get some kind of mysterious. Uh, mysterious message there, and this is and this is supposed to demonstrate uh, the uh, the beauty of God's word and the inspired nature of God's word. That only inspiration, right, could do something that mysterious. And what that's bunk. All right, I'm trying to think of another word, but that's that's bunk. Uh, this is revelation. All right, this is revelation. It is not concealment. This is not the book of mysteries in the sense that you know, see what you can figure out. You're going to be studying decoding stuff, right? Uh, you don't, I don't have to do that all right, to, to figure out what's going on in the Word of God. Uh, don't be impressed by that. And this is the thing. I, I hear conservative. I'm, I'm digressing now, right? Because this, this came up not too long ago in another context. Uh, but, but people who believe in inspiration, they get all excited. Oh, look how wonderful the Word of God is. Only God could, you see, do something that nifty. And this is revelation. All right? It is revelation. It is not, it is not concealment. Uh, it is not concealment. I don't have to have uh, some ability in decoding uh, to figure out what is going on in the Word of God. So my recommendation to you, when you see that, uh, just blow it away. All right? uh, I, you don't have to be able to figure out some cryptogram uh, to, to figure out what God is saying. Uh, it's revelation. All right? If you let that grip your heart. God is, trying to, God is communicating something to me here. Uh, and I, I don't have to sit myself in a corner and figure out some some mysterious code uh, to, to figure out what he's talking about. Uh, and it's the same thing with typology here. This is not mysterious. Right? It's not mysterious stuff. Uh, it is that which, uh, if we come to the Scripture with the proper framework, knowing what to look for and how God reveals, uh, it's going to be much on the surface. Uh, so see where he puts the emphasis. All right, now, I'm saying that to come back to our little analysis here. Uh, we're looking at uh, the, the, the tabernacle furniture, uh, and there is a great focus, and we started looking at this last Lord's Day, uh, on the elements of the furniture that are all uh, object lessons that God was setting down in various locations in this tabernacle uh, to teach various spiritual uh, truths. And you can't miss that. That's where the focus is. Right? That's where the focus is. Uh, and I must then draw some attention. Uh, to that information. Now, we were looking last week at the very structure. Here is the outer court, right? And then the holy place, then the most holy place, and the pieces of furniture that God uh, set up uh, in a logical way leading up into that most holy place. Not without significance. The very first thing that we see is that altar. Uh, if you're going to get to God, you have to, you have to be at the place of sacrifice. That's where it starts. 
there's no approach to God. There's not a move that man can make to God apart from going through that altar, uh, the place of the blood, the place of the sacrifice. Uh, very, very graphic lesson. Then the labor, and then we move into the uh, holy place. This is where we left off last time. Uh, and there are three pieces of furniture in that holy place. Uh, you have the table of the showbread, the bread of the presence, the bread of the faces. Uh, speaking of that consecration uh, of uh, all that we are under the Lord. Then the lampstand. And a beautiful picture there. We spent most of our time, I think, last uh, week there at the end anyway, considering that lampstand and the beautiful picture that it has there of Christ as the light of the world and the branches then representing the people of God inseparably united to Him that bear witness uh, to that center shaft. Uh, beautiful, beautiful picture uh, of uh, the illumination uh, that the Lord gives to His people. Uh, the light from that lampstand speaks of illumination, the light of the gospel, uh, the revelation of God, that means of grace, and the lampstand itself uh, speaking then, pointing to uh, the Lord Jesus as the light of the world, and then His people that are also the light uh, of the world, bearing witness to that, to that light. All right, now that brings us then to the last piece uh, of furniture in the holy place, and that is the ark or the altar of uh, burnt incense, the altar of incense. Uh, you'll see this described in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, and thou shalt make an altar, right at verse 1 of Exodus 30, if you want to look at this in the text. Thou shalt make an altar of, to burn incense upon of shittim wood, uh, shalt thou make it. A cubit uh, shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, four square shall it be. Two cubits shall be the height thereof, or the horns thereof uh, the same. Overlay it with pure gold, top thereof, the sides thereof, round about, the horns thereof. Thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. Put the two rings in it, so forth and so forth. Verse 6, uh, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with thee. So very specific instructions as to how this altar of incense was to be constructed and where it was to be placed. And I think the placement of this is going to be one of the uh, most significant parts of the uh, message that God is revealing to us here. Here is this altar of incense that is placed right smack up against uh, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Right up against it. Here is as close then as you could get into the holy place uh, without busting through that curtain, as it were, without busting through that veil. Now, the instructions concerning the nature of this incense uh, are also given to us here. It's a very precious thing. Uh, a very fragrant thing that was to be burned here upon uh, this altar of incense. You read through this and uh, you'll learn as well that this altar was to be fueled uh, from the coals from the altar back uh, in the outer court. Uh, the priests were to take the coals that uh, were burning there, the place of sacrifice, and go start the fire, uh, if you will, on this altar of incense. So there was a link here very obvious link between the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense. Uh, it was burning, uh, if you will, from the same fire. Uh, the fire where the sacrifice was made is now that which uh, is fueling this altar of incense. Now, the symbolism here, uh, the symbolism is, uh, I, I think, most 
uh, most clear, and certainly we have the clues and the direct statements of this uh, in the uh, Old Testament Scripture uh, itself, uh, where we have the uh, interpretation given to us by David. I think we maybe have looked at this at the close. Uh, Psalm 141, uh, David says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Uh, here is the link. Here is the picture. David playing upon the symbolism uh, of that which the ark of the or, or the altar of incense was conveying, as this uh, as this smoke, this fragrance now would come from that altar. Uh, it was a picture here of the prayers of God's people uh, that threw uh, on the grounds of the sacrifice. See that connection now. See that connection. Here's the coals from the uh, altar that is fueling now these uh, prayers, this incense that is being uh, lifted up in the presence of God on the grounds then of the sacrifice. And because of the sacrifice fueled, as I say, by uh, the very fire of that sacrificial altar, uh, we have this incense being uh, offered up uh, unto the Lord. Picture here uh, of the prayers of the people of God. Uh, and uh, again, the, the imagery here uh, is uh, certainly, I think, very graphic. Uh, as the smoke, the incense would be uh, ascending from this altar of incense and wafting over uh, into that most holy place uh, where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was. Uh, this is as near. I think this is a very telling uh, and a very vivid message here that this altar of incense that represents the prayers of the people of God were as close uh, to the presence of God that one could possibly get. All right? It represented the very nearness, the, as close as uh, you're going to get to the presence of God without being there in person, as it were. Uh, and here the smoke, I say, would waft over into the very presence uh, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Now, so in that connection, let me take you to the New Testament Scriptures here just for a moment. I have an interesting statement that the Apostle makes. And uh, has caused some degree of difficulty in some interpretators. For some interpretators, is that a word? Interpretations. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant, verse 1, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, an earthly sanctuary. Uh, now keep in mind that the whole message of the book of Hebrews is in many ways demonstrating the superiority of this new covenant over the old covenant. Uh, and emphasizing that the superiority is not in any way in the message that was being preached by those two covenants, uh, but indeed by the way in which that message was administered. Uh, we no longer need all of those object lessons. We no longer need all of those visible prophecies because the reality has come. Uh, Hebrews is a great book to show you how to interpret and see the implications uh, of that entire mosaic ceremonial uh, economy. So here is the contrast. Uh, but the apostle here is drawing our attention to that earthly uh, sanctuary. Verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, uh, the first, wherein was the candlestick, 
and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which have the golden censer uh, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. We'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. But I'm concerned here about the statement concerning the placement uh, of the uh, of the censer, of the altar of incense here. Uh, we read in Exodus, we read in the Old Testament account that the altar of incense was on uh, this side of the veil, as it were, along with the table of showbread, along with the, uh, along with the candlestick. These three pieces were uh, together inside of the sanctuary, inside of the holy place. But I read here what uh, Hebrews is saying. Uh, it separates now the what the authorized version translates here as the golden censer. Uh, and there's some question here as to exactly how that ought to be translated, whether we're talking about the censer itself that the high priest would hold, but it's the word uh, that otherwise I would regard as the altar itself uh, that was now placed inside, uh, inside the veil on the other side of the veil where otherwise we think only the Ark of the Covenant uh, would belong. But... Uh, I, I think what the Apostle is doing, I'm not going to get into all of the uh, particular and peculiar interpretations. Some come to this, ah, you see here's a contradiction uh, between uh, the Old and the New Testament, between one place of God's Word, another place of God's Word. I don't think so. I think what the Apostle is doing here is playing upon the theological significance of that uh, altar of incense. Uh, it is... Uh, that which comes from the altar. I think that is the key thing to see here. It is that which comes from this altar of incense, uh, representing the prayers of the people that go into the very place behind the veil. Uh, not talking about the geographic location of the altar here. Now, some want to take it, uh, and this is what the authorized version has interpreted, I think, apparently, uh, that it refers to that censer that the high priest would take. Uh, on that one time of the year, on the Day of Atonement, and he would take some of that incense and now carry that censer in behind the veil uh, as he performed the duties of the high priest on that Day of Atonement. That's a possibility, but the word here uh, more typically suggests the altar itself and not the little censer that would be taken in. But I think it demonstrates, and there's a very beautiful picture here, uh, of the theology of the altar of incense. Uh, that the result of that, the work, if you will, of the altar of incense, uh, did indeed carry over right into that place behind the veil. Uh, it's as near, and this is, I think, the beautiful picture here, and a very sobering picture uh, for us all, uh, in terms of the, the work of prayer. Uh, how, how close do we want to be to God? All right, we talk about our, our desire to be with God, to know the nearness of God and whatever else. Well, here's the lesson. Uh, you will not be nearer to God on this earth uh, outside the place of prayer. All right? It is the place of prayer and it is uh, the means of prayer that take us as close to God, if I can put it this way, that we are going to get uh, this side of heaven. All right? It is the place of prayer that will take us as close to God as we're going to get this side of heaven without actually being in that most holy place in person. It is the incense, it is the prayers that take us uh, into that very presence uh, of the Lord. Uh, so I think it's not without significance. 
that we see the placement here of this ark, uh, or I keep saying ark, of, of, of the altar of incense, uh, as it uh, sends forth that fragrance and that uh, beautiful uh, incense into, wafting over into the very, uh, the very place of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, picture here. Very obvious picture uh, of the, uh, of the uh, prayers of God's people that take them uh, into the very presence uh, of the Lord. Alright, now that's what I see in the uh, place of the uh, holy place. Now that leaves us but one final piece of furniture. And now we go into the most holy place. Behind the veil, that place which was the most restricted. Nobody could get there except the high priest. And he could only get there on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. You come back to Exodus chapter 25, uh, and we have now the instructions concerning uh, the making of the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's, again, not without uh, significance that although the Ark of the Covenant is the most restricted piece of furniture, it's there behind the veil, only, I say, the high priest one time of year could get into that place where the Ark was. Uh, when Moses... Uh, receives the instructions from the Lord as to how to make this tabernacle and what to do in constructing the furniture of the tabernacle. Uh, the Lord begins, however, with the instructions concerning the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this is that great climactic uh, object lesson of the presence of God uh, with His people. This is where we're trying to get, if you will. Uh, this is where the Lord is leading His people into that place of His very presence. How do we get into the presence of God? Uh, and I think, uh, therefore, it's not without uh, importance that the very first thing uh, that we learn uh, when uh, he begins to show him the pattern of those things that he is to make uh, brings him to the construction of the ark. Uh, verse 10, Exodus 25. And they shall make the ark of shittim wood, acacia wood, a very hard, a very durable uh, wood, speaking in some ways, I suppose, of the incorruptibility of the construction. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without thou shalt overlay it, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about it, and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereon, and two rings shall be in the one side, two rings on the other side. Thou shalt make staves of shatim wood, and overlay them with gold, and so forth, and so forth. Uh, verse 16, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony... Uh, which I shall give thee, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, thou shalt make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, and one uh, cherub on the one end, the other on the other end, even the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. The cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on the high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces shall look one to the other, uh, toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony uh, which I give thee. And there uh, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I give thee concerning the commandment of the children of Israel, uh, the ark of the covenant. 
very specific instructions. Here is this little box, all right, just a little box. Uh, and this little box was going to be overlaid with gold. This little box was going to have over it these two cherubim uh, that were hovering there over the mercy seat. Uh, and inside, we are told, at least in this context, uh, that inside the box were to be placed the testimonies, the tablets of the testimony, the Decalogue, if you will, those stone tablets that uh, recorded the Ten Commandments that we've been studying here uh, in the opening moments of Sunday School. Uh, we're going to learn a bit later, not in this context, but a bit later. And Hebrews uh, made reference to that, that at least for a time being, not seemingly consistently, but for a time anyway, uh, inside the ark, not only was the copies of the Ten Commandments, uh, but also a pot of manna uh, and also Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, and those were placed inside the ark. Now, this is the climax. All right, of all of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant was the climactic piece of furniture. Uh, we're going to see later on that it had a function. It had a use uh, that extended even beyond uh, the function within the tabernacle. It was going to be that object lesson that the people of God would take before them uh, in the uh, wilderness wanderings. When the ark came to rest, then they knew this is where they were supposed to stop. Uh, when they uh, started entering into the conquest and Joshua uh, would lead the people into victory uh, as the Lord so commanded, uh, it was the ark right, that the priest carried that caused the Jordan uh, to separate. It was the ark that led the procession around the city of Jericho uh, that precipitated that great victory from the Lord. Uh, so the significance of this object lesson uh, is certainly widespread. It's a whole theology that develops and ultimately and unfortunately, uh, as we're going to see, a superstition uh, that in unbelief uh, was evolving around uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to see what God did in that superstitious period uh, to show these people that this ark is not the reality of my presence. That's what they did. And here's always the danger of confusing, uh, of confusing the object lesson with the reality. Here is this little box. That was a pretty box. Uh, but this box, as it represented as an object lesson, a token of the visible and the real manifest presence of God with his people, it was a picture of that, but it was not the reality of that. God in the Old Testament dispensation did not live in a box. I guarantee you he did not. He was not contained in that little box. It was a symbol. It was an object lesson of the presence of God with his people. But in unbelief, what happened? In unbelief, what happened? The day came when they associated this almost as nothing more than a magical charm. Uh, and they'll take this to battle. Oh, this work, this work with Joshua. We'll try it. Remember, what's his name's kids? Uh, Eli's kids there in the beginning of Samuel. Uh, this just became a little talisman, a little good luck charm uh, that they would take with them into the place of battle. And God says, I'm not going to let you do this. Uh, and, and God uh, permitted what? Uh, he permitted the Philistines to, to capture the ark. Now, I guarantee you, if God lived in that box, the Philistines could not capture that ark of the covenant. Uh, but God was very visibly and very forthrightly showing these people, you are misunderstanding what this thing is all about. Uh, I am not in this box. This is not me. Uh, but they had so abused it and so misused it. Uh, and, and here's this uh, very obvious obsolescence that God is building uh, into that uh, Ark of the Covenant. 
So I, I want to avoid the misunderstandings. There were some in unbelief in Israel that misunderstood it. Uh, but I don't want to be guilty uh, of those that misunderstand uh, the theology of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a beautiful picture here of the manifest and the real presence of God with His people. But what is this teaching to us? And I, I can only be suggestive here. I think we've I've dealt with this uh, in, in some detail in the past probably. Uh, so I'm only going to be suggestive here. Uh, but there, there is in the Old Testament, and beginning here, a sophisticated a sophisticated uh, theology that surrounds the ark. Uh, what does this ark teach me about God? Uh, and, and four or five things that just jump off the page uh, as uh, what this ark teaches us about God. Uh, I submit that it, first of all, teaches us something about the sovereignty of God. Uh, you see the construction here. It's, it's overlaid with the gold. Here is this picture of majesty uh, and the glory that belongs to the presence of God. Uh, and, and this is not something that I'm reading into it. I have Old Testament confirmation of this, uh, that this was part of the message. I come to Jeremiah. I come to David. It's not, uh, it's not unimportant that they identify the ark as the throne of God. You see, this is the throne of God. This is the footstool of God. Uh, these terms that speak of His sovereignty, of His kingship, uh, I, I see that here. And this is one of the lessons that God was teaching His people, that if you understand anything about my presence, you have to understand that to be in my presence is to be in the presence of the King, you see. Uh, to be in, present, in, in the presence of the Sovereign, uh, that one that is majestic, that one that is supreme. You look at Psalm 132. Uh, that's a great commentary uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, here, David Again, you have to plug in all that you know about your Hebrew history here. Uh, this was David's desire to bring up that ark uh, into the uh, place where uh, it deserved to be. Uh, it had been in the woods of Kirjath-Jerim for, I don't know, what, 50, 60 years, I suppose. Uh, just out there, and now David is expressing his desire, his longing to bring this ark back uh, to where... Uh, it ought to be. Uh, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark uh, of thy strength. Uh, uh, verse 14, This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, the Lord say, says, for I will, uh, I will desire it. Uh, is it Psalm 99 as well? Uh, I don't know. This one just... Yes, Psalm 99, The Lord reigneth. Uh, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. There's, there's this imagery of the ark that highlights the sovereignty uh, of our God. Uh, he sits as king between the cherubims here. Uh, so that's the first thing uh, that we want to learn about the ark of the covenant. It declares that God is king. It Number two declares uh, that God is holy. That to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of that one that is infinitely holy. Uh, and I think that the cherubim, particularly to me, speak and declare that message. Again, I'm not going to give you a whole theology and rundown of the cherubim. One of the angelic classes uh, that we read of in the Scripture. Uh, but I think that you'll find that almost every time that you, uh, you read about the cherubim specifically, that they are associated with the presence and the holiness of God. They were almost the guardians. I, I see the cherubim almost as the guardians 
the proclaimers and the guardians of the holiness of God. Uh, the very first time that we see the cherubim, remember, uh, is after man has fallen into sin and now expelled uh, from paradise, the Garden of Eden. Uh, and having been expelled, the Lord stations there at the gate of paradise uh, the cherubim with their flaming swords, uh, wielding back and forth to keep men, as it were, who have now fallen out of that place uh, of, of paradise. Uh, sinners can't have that access. So here they are the guardians. Why well, say the guardians uh, of the holy presence uh, of God? Uh, we, we see them other places, but I, I, I think of that, that uh, majestic vision uh, of the prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 1, that one that you get lost in, right, when you begin to, uh, to read of those uh, living creatures, those beasts with a face like a man and a face like a lion and a face like a... Uh, an eagle and a face like something else. I forget offhand what it was. Uh, these four different faces of, of these living creatures and, and, the, and this throne, this chariot with this wheel, with wheels moving round within wheels and eyes on all of the wheels. Strange vision, right? Strange vision. You say, what in the world's going on here? Spaceships? Yeah, some people go that direction, but they're the kooks. Uh, they're the kooks. Uh, not spaceships. It's, it's a vision there of the holiness and the glory of God. There is a picture of the sovereignty of God. Now, who were those living creatures? Uh, I don't know precisely in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, but you read in chapter 10, and he makes reference to that vision that he saw at the river of Kabar, and he says those living creatures were the cherubim. Uh, the cherubim. There were the attendants of that holy throne of God. Uh, the attendants uh, of that holy presence of God. I say every time you see the cherubim, in one way or another, they are associated with God's presence. They are associated with the holiness of God, proclaiming that holiness, guarding that holiness. So it's not then without significance that here over the ark we see these two cherubim with their wings overspread uh, that are there proclaiming that the presence of God is a holy presence. Uh, and they're guardians, as it were, uh, protecting uh, that presence. And it would have been a very foreboding sight. Theologically, this was a foreboding sight. Now, it was pretty, right? It was pretty. It was ornate. It was gold. It was all that. But I'm saying theologically, the message of the cherubim was a foreboding message. Uh, here, the presence of God is holy. Uh, how are we going to get to the presence of God? Here are these angelic creatures that are guarding, keeping man away, as it were, uh, from that holy presence. A warning that unless you are holy, unless you have the clean hands and the pure heart, uh, there's no approach. Uh, unto the presence of God. Uh, it declares the holiness of God. Uh, it declares to me also something of the provision of God. The provision of God. So we don't see it in this context. Uh, but if you look at uh, chapter 16 and then again in Numbers 17, you have these two other objects that were for a time anyway placed within the Ark of the Covenant. Paul makes reference to this in Hebrews in that text that we just read a moment ago. Had three objects. The law of God, I'll comment on that in just a moment. But we also had the pot of manna, and we had Aaron's rod that budded. Now what does this speak of? I say the contents here, these two contents particularly, speak of the gracious provision uh, that the Lord has for His people. The pot of manna, the manna was that daily, uh, that daily bread that God had provided for His people in the wilderness. Day after day after day as they went through uh, that wilderness experience, uh, every morning there was a fresh provision of the manna 
The manna was a testimony to God's daily provision uh, to meet the needs of His people. And there were lessons there. Just don't take that and try to figure out who cares. And I understand what I mean here. Who cares what the substance was of this? I don't have to figure this out uh, as to what it was. But there was a message beyond the, the makeup uh, of what the manna was. What was God teaching the people? What's, what's the lesson that Christ made? Remember, what, what, what did Christ say was the, what was the key lesson from the manna there? That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and the Lord gave, and put that now in the context, the Lord gave very specific instructions, yes, as to how that manna was to be collected. Uh, you take enough today for what you need today. Uh, you, don't go be hoard, you don't hoard this up. See. Uh, you don't take for today. Uh, you don't take today what you think you're going to need tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the next day. Uh, no. For them to do that was a sign of their distrust. Uh, God says, I'll give you this daily. I will give this to you day by day. So therefore, if you took today what you thought you would need tomorrow, you were distrusting the Lord. Do you see the connection there? You weren't taking God at His word that the manna would be there uh, when you needed it, uh, at the time that you needed it, in fulfillment of the word of God. So a very graphic lesson here. But God was so gracious, wasn't He? There was not a day for 40 odd years. There was not a day went by. Uh, except the Sabbath day, and we have this particular instructions there. And that was a matter of faith as well. Uh, but every time God said the manna would be there, the manna was there. Uh, a picture here of the gracious provision of God uh, and, the, and the lesson that God uh, gave His Word, if you will. The manna was a testimony that God gave His Word and God kept His Word uh, to His people. A real sense in which the manna speaks of that means of grace. Uh, that God has so wonderfully and graciously given to His people. Here's my word. You can count on my word. You can believe my word. So the manna was there uh, in the ark to testify that in the presence of God there is this statement of faithfulness uh, and dependability. You can always count on what God says. But there was Aaron's rod that budded as well. This goes to the context of Numbers. Uh, you remember that at a little rebellion uh, among the sons of Korah, uh, among the sons of Korah who uh, thought that they had every right to do what Aaron was doing. God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. Uh, Korahs were part of the tribe of Levi. Hey, why can't we do it? We have just as much right to, uh, to do. And God says, all right, we'll see. All right, we'll see. Uh, who, who this chosen mediator is. Everybody bring their rod, right? Every tribe bring their rod. Every family bring the rod here. And the rod that buds is the one that I've chosen to be the mediator. So here are all these rods. And sure enough, it's Aaron's rod that budded uh, as a testimony to the fact that God had chosen Aaron and the family of Aaron to be the mediator uh, to exercise this role of priest. What, is, what does Aaron's rod teach us? That men approach God only through the chosen mediator. There is only one way, and there is only God's way if there is going to be approach to God. You don't circumvent that mediator that God has chosen. There is one way. There is one way to God, and it is the way that He determines, the way that He decrees. Uh, and you don't, you don't try to do uh, an end around or something. You go through the mediator. And Aaron's rod was a very visible, very visible object lesson that God had chosen the only mediator. Uh, through whom and by whom there could be any approach unto Him. Uh, you come ultimately then, that's a prophecy of Christ, obviously, 
the only way, the only truth that man has uh, unto the presence uh, of the Father. So it speaks of the gracious provision, uh, this Ark of the Covenant. Uh, speaks of two more things that uh, I'll now wait until next week, I guess. Our time is gone. But two more very important lessons that the Ark of the Covenant teaches concerning the presence of God. It's going to speak to us of the righteousness of God and it's going to speak to us uh, of the atonement uh, that God has provided. The only way ultimately then whereby uh, man can come into that enjoyment of the presence uh, of the Lord. Beautiful picture. While we don't, while we don't any longer uh, have a tabernacle, we don't seek to have a ta- tabernacle, have a model. We tried making a model of this one time years ago. That's okay uh, to look at and to play with. Uh, but we weren't going to use it for worship. Right? Uh, we weren't going to use it for worship. Uh, Larry, you just keep your goats at home. Right? We're not going to bring those goats here uh, and uh, start sacrificing them. Uh, but the picture, all right? we don't repeat the picture, but the message is exactly the same. And that's what I want us to see as we look uh, at... Uh, this section of Exodus. All right, let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, offer our thanks for the Word of God. We're thankful, Lord, for the message that it reveals. We pray that you would increase our understanding, give us more and more insight by the help of your Spirit. Uh, Enlighten us, Lord, uh, in this truth that we might uh, comprehend, that we might believe, that we might live in the reality of that which we see. Uh, Lord, show us more of yourself. Bless us today now as we leave this Sunday school Uh, time into the sanctuary. Give us a word from God there that will instruct us and do us well. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.